Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we were last in our study of what the gospel is not. And uh, if you haven't been keeping up those videos, for those of you who may be watching online, are available at the Not By Work site under the Midweek Bible Study section. Um, but we're, we're leading up to, and we'll just begin to get into it tonight, at the end of our session tonight, uh, several misnomers about the gospel, several things that often people include as part of the gospel or perhaps even think of as the sum total of the gospel that really aren't. Um, in the previous sessions, we talked a lot about the current milieu that, that, that characterizes our culture and how that has influenced the church and it has influenced um, ultimately the way we think about the gospel. We have one more thing we want to do, though, before we get to some of these erroneous concepts and thoughts surrounding the gospel, and that is to clearly define what the gospel is. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult to recognize uh, counterfeit if you don't have a very clear understanding of what the gospel is. Um, I'm sure you've heard the analogy many times of how the Secret Service, which is tasked with, uh, or at least traditionally has been tasked, I'm not sure if it's still the case, with uh, handling the counterfeiting problems of money in our country. And when they go through training, uh, rather than tr studying all of the various counterfeits that, uh, that have been floating around out there, they become immersed and saturated in the real deal. They become so familiar with a real bona fide U.S. bill, whether it's a dollar, five dollar, twenty dollar, whatever, people don't usually counterfeit one dollar bills, but a hundred dollar bills or whatever, so that if they see a counterfeit, they can spot it instantly. And the same thing is true with the gospel. We we, we want to make sure we understand what the gospel is. So the biblical term, which is used seventy-seven times in the New Testament, is euangelion. It's where we get. Uh, the English word evangelism, often that upsilon there, the second letter in Greek that you see there uh, under euangelion is transliterated as a V in English, and so that's why it becomes evangel evangelistic or evangelistic evangelism, so forth. Uh, but it means good news. It's not always in reference to the good news about our salvation eternally. Uh, it's not always related to the death, burial, and resurrection. Sometimes it could just mean someone bringing good news. Uh, you see that word used in various contexts, um, but uh, as it relates to the message of Jesus Christ and the saving message which when believed brings eternal life, uh, it is this. The gospel is the good news about the person and work of Christ which when believed brings eternal life. Uh, in uh, my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have a chapter in which I introduce this subject and talk about the different other things that the term gospel uh, can mean, so we won't uh, spend time belaboring the point here, but for our purposes, when we use the term gospel, and I usually denote that by capitalizing it, we're talking about the good news about God's Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, which, when believed, brings eternal life. Because uh, as we've said, and again, it's been a few weeks because of the weather you know, cancellations and then am I traveling, so I can't remember exactly what our train of thought was last time we were together. So if I'm repeating myself, I apologize. But uh, we've talked about how people can and do believe many things about Jesus. Um, and those things can be true. But not everything that you believe 
in and of itself brings eternal life. Like, for example, the fact that Jesus lived. Many people believe that Jesus, in fact, is a historically testified figure. And they're right. In fact, he's the most historically testified human being ever to live. Um, but just believing that he lived doesn't save you. In fact, just believing that he uh, lived and died and rose again doesn't save you. Uh, we run across a lot of people who might say, yeah, resurrection, fine. I believe in miracles. I believe in the supernatural, mystical ideas. If, if, you, if you believe that, fine. I don't have a problem with that. But the gospel message, as we shall see, is recognizing that you are a sinner under the penalty of sin and in need of a Savior. And that no one else can save you other than Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And not just that he died and rose again, but that he died and rose again as your personal substitute in your place. That he paid your penalty. Uh, and in so doing, he then provides the free gift of eternal life if you'll simply receive it by faith. Uh, so the gospel can and often does in Scripture refer to that quantifiable content of saving faith. What precisely, we talked about this in the previous session, what precisely is it about Jesus that we have to believe in order to receive eternal life? Paul uses the term in that way. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, what's the antecedent of it, the pronoun it? Yes. The gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So in a nutshell, Paul is introducing in his letter to the Romans this notion that there is good news that when believed is powerful enough to bring the gift of salvation, eternal salvation. Um, some people have suggested that the term salvation here in Romans 1.16 is not referring to eternal salvation. I kind of debunk that a little bit in getting the gospel wrong. Uh, to me, it pretty much settles the issue when you go to the end of Romans, and, and Paul says, and, I, and so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Remember, he had not been to Rome at this point, and he was wanting to share the gospel with unbelievers. So this isn't about sanctification. This is about justification. This is about the good news about eternal life. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. Where have we heard that before? Again, in Romans 1. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And now, again, he say, he's sort of restating the gospel as the message of the cross is salvation, the power of God. And it is, uh, even though for some people it's foolishness to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, he, this is actually a very important passage, 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, it, that really gives us a lot of meat to understand what the gospel is. So here, again, he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, in in uh, Top Ten Reasons, the book that we just came out with, we talk about uh, top ten reasons some people go to hell, ten reasons why people will not receive the free gift of eternal life. And ultimately, unbelief is the one reason everybody goes to hell. But why, why do they not believe the gospel? Well, because they think it's foolish. They, they look at it and they say, there's no way, according to the world's system and the world's mindset, that 
that somebody would die for the sins of others, that you could get something as valuable as eternal life for free, you know. Uh, our own human pride makes us think we've got to do something to get anything. And so when it comes to the most important thing that every human being needs, which is eternal life, forgiveness of sin, people just think it's utter foolishness to suggest that you could get that without doing something, without making some type of commitment or pledge or, or, or the types of things we're going to talk about in uh, what the gospel is not. So it's foolishness to those who don't believe it, but to those who in fact do believe it, it becomes the power of God to salvation. But he elaborates a little bit more when he says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, that is through the world's wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe it. So notice there is a message that when preached, and the word preached there means proclaimed, has to be believed. So what I'm kind of leading up to here is this notion that the gospel is not some kind of a nebulous, uh, you know, hazily defined concept where you just sort of walk an aisle or have a feeling or shed a few tears or raise a hand or sign a card. The gospel is a, has content. It's a message. You know, it was called the message of the cross. It was called the gospel in Romans 1.16. It's a message that is preached. And, uh, you know, when it's preached, it will save those who believe it. So it's the same thing Paul said in Romans 10. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how can they hear if there's no preacher to preach the message? So people don't get saved by osmosis. That's the whole reason we have the Great Commission and the evangelistic enterprise. Um, so let me kind of drive that point home by tracing through the book of Acts, a few other examples, and some of the epistles. Again, the point here is that the gospel is made up of words. I uh, forget which one of the famous uh, theologians back from the Middle Ages made this statement, but I think you've heard me uh, express my frustration with it many times. Uh, but you'll see it on posters and bumper stickers, and you'll, you'll even hear people quote it as, as if it's some kind of a profound statement. But it's, it's really incorrect. But it's the statement, uh, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Right? But you, you can't preach the gospel without words. There's no other way to preach the gospel. The gospel isn't being nice to someone, mowing their lawn, shoveling their drive. You know, Jeff, Mr. Gracious guy, has spent a lot of time in recent weeks plowing people's drive, right? And that's gracious. And he's storing up, Lord willing, untold treasures in heaven for that. But that's not the gospel. When you're doing that, you're not sharing the gospel. You might be providing an opening to share the gospel. You might be establishing a relationship so that you have the opportunity to share the gospel. But the gospel has to have content. It has to be verbalized. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be spoken. It could be written, right? You could record it. You say it in many different hundreds of languages. Uh, you can express the core essence of the gospel uh, in many different ways, but it's got to be expressed using language. And as we've said, the gospel in English is so simple, you can state it in 10 words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's, that's it, in a nutshell, right? But if you've not communicated that, uh, you've not shared 
the gospel. And I've run in through the years, 32 years of ministry now, I've run into many times when uh, people are ashamed in, in exact contradistinction to Paul's words in Romans 1.16 of sharing the gospel. They don't want to put gospel tracts out for people to possibly pick up and maybe hear the gospel. They don't want to share the gospel at the end of a community event. They don't want, they don't want to you know, offend people. They think that sharing the gospel is inviting them out on your boat for an afternoon or inviting them over for a cookout or you know, playing some cards together and just being good friends. And sadly, those people, who many of them are believers, I believe, I'm not questioning whether they're saved, I'm sure they believe the gospel, they've just got a horrible view of the power and the importance and the significance of the gospel. And I believe that someday they're going to find out that all these people that they thought they were helping, they really were woefully inadequate because they didn't take the opportunity to share the gospel. That doesn't mean we beat them over the head with it. It doesn't mean we back them into a corner and demand some kind of a commitment. or you know. It just means we share the good news. And that can be done very simply. Uh, very, very simply. So let's kind of drive that. Yeah, sure. Gary. You share it simply, but you also talked about the different aspects of the things about the gospel that have to be there and have to be believed. What if you don't cover everything? Or... If previously someone shared it with them, oh, I, I know that. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe they weren't shared the gospel correctly. Yeah, they probably weren't. And that, and that's why you need to... So, so Gary's comment, just in case it didn't pick up on the video, was, you know, what if someone says, well, I've, I've heard that, but they really heard it incorrectly or heard didn't hear the full complement of the key components of the gospel? Yeah, it's really not that complicated. I know I, in getting the gospel wrong, I spend 400 pages, you know, addressing it. But that's more of a theological book too. But it really comes down to five core essentials. Uh, first of all, Jesus. They have, Jesus has to be part of the gospel. If he's not part of the gospel, then it's not a gospel. Sin. If you've not addressed the issue of sin, you haven't shared the gospel. Jesus said, if you do not believe in me, you'll die in your sins. That's the problem. The problem we're being saved from is the penalty of sin. And so, you know, you hear pastors and preachers that are very popular today, uh, like the Joel Osteens of the world, uh, on record in different talk shows saying, I never mentioned sin. Rick Warren, I won't mention sin. I, people don't need to hear negative stuff. They just need to hear positive stuff, you know. So we want to be encouraging. When people come to our church, we don't want to discourage them. So their gospel is, if you're feeling discouraged and depressed and lonely and lack purpose and meaning in life, if your life lacks direction, you're kind of wondering where to go, just come to Jesus and you'll find meaning and purpose in life. And that's their gospel. But that's not the biblical gospel. And there's nothing about that that's good news because it's leading people straight to hell. Because they've never understood the fact that they are a sinner before a holy God. And the only way they can be made right before a holy God is by faith in Jesus Christ. So sin, Jesus Christ, um, the fact that he died and rose again, which, you know, again, you don't have to get into the finer theological points of the substitutionary atonement and the vicarious suffering of Christ and a deeper Christology. But they need to understand that death has a penalty and somebody paid that price on their behalf. And that somebody is Jesus Christ. 
And when he died and rose again, and by the way, the resurrection is absolutely a core element of the gospel. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul outlines it quite clearly. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So if he was not resurrected, in fact, if you look at um, Romans chapter 4, I don't have it on the screen, but Romans chapter uh, 4, verses 24 and 25. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, talking about the righteousness of God, shall be imputed to us who believe in him, that's Jesus, who, that's God, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Notice verse 25, who was delivered up because of our offenses, the penalty had to be paid, and was raised for our justification. So if he just died and never rose again, then what's the? he hasn't defeated death, hell, and the grave or anything. He hasn't purchased life. But when he rose from the dead, it, it, it satisfied the wrath of God and gives him the power to then offer that life to anyone who believes in him. Uh, and then the last element is the exclusivity, that it's not just faith alone in, in, in Christ alone. It's, it's not just faith in Christ, it's faith alone in Christ alone. In other words, the eternal life is not a buffet line where you can say some people go with Allah, some people go with Buddha, some people go with whatever. I think I'll choose Christ. It's the one and only. There's an exclusive nature to the gospel. It's Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, which is pretty exclusive, comes to the Father except through me. So it has to be faith alone and Christ alone. So, you know, it, it, it's not... I think, you know, what your question is, Gary, is really getting into more of the techniques and uh, principles of evangelism and methods of evangelism. And I, I think that's a broader subject that we will get into at some point. But ultimately, as Lewis Perry Chafer says in, in, uh, in one of his books, the book on uh, evangelism is the name of the book, uh, evangelism comes down to the work of the Spirit and prayer. So we have to be sensitive to the moment. Uh, but remember, it's the gospel that's the power of God, not us, not our manipulative techniques or clever stories. It's the gospel. So if you say nothing more to the person than, well, you know, I don't know where you are in your spiritual life, but for me, I know I'm a sinner and need a Savior, and I've chosen to trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for my sins. And you know what? He died and rose again for your sins, too. I mean, something like that, or two sentences, and you've at least planted that seed. And then where the sensitivity comes in is if they sort of express an interest or follow up with a question, or you can tell by their expression that maybe they're open, then you could, you could engage them a little bit more. But all I'm saying is that at the very least, we need to communicate the simple gospel message. And it is so simple that a child can believe it. That's why Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. Uh, as we've talked about, children innately understand. I was listening to a podcast last night on the drive home. Uh, and uh, he, the guy was talking about, and he's, not, he's a believer, but he's not a theologian or a pastor. He's just a, he was a guy talking about the current events. Uh, but he made the comment that, you know, children, think of a little infant. You know, that infant is hold, being held, looking up at you, at mommy, 
and it relies on mommy for food, for shelter, for clothing, for comfort, for soothing, for changing their diaper, everything. And as children get older, they, they continue to understand the need for tr trust. They trust their parents for uh, shelter in the home and clothes and, and meals and all of that. And so when you come to a child who's old enough to understand the concept of sin and the need for a Savior, and they go, yeah, I am a sinner, and boy, I really do need to be rescued from the penalty of sin. What should I do? And you go, just trust in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for you. They get it. They under That's not complicated to them. They understand what trust means. And they go, if, if that's all I have to do, count me in. I'll trust him. I'll put, I'll put all my eggs in his basket. I'll trust this Jesus Christ who died and rose again for my sins as the one who can save me. But what happens is the older we get, and, and with a, with a, owing to a lot of influence of the devil who's blinding men's hearts to the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we've complicated faith and we've made... We've redefined faith, as we've talked about. And we've added components to faith, and we've taken the simplicity of faith, which we talked about in Hebrews 11.1 1, not long ago, out of the picture so that people think faith is some type of volitional commitment or pledge or promise or you've got to turn from your sin or you've got to stop doing this or start doing this or you've got to bring something to the table. And so when, when you tell an adult, all you've got to do is trust Jesus, they go, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that. And they don't understand how simple it is. So, you know, I think if that person that you're talking to indicates an interest or a, does anything verbally or non-verbally that indicates they might be open, then you begin to ask more probing questions and talk more about the Lord and share your story. Ultimately, it's, it's your story. You ought, to be, you ought to become so familiar with the gospel that it rolls off your tongue without the slightest hesitation. And the reason we're not is because most churches don't preach the gospel. Do you recognize that the gospel is something that is necessary for believers and unbelievers? Believers need to hear the gospel too. And most churches, the gospel is something, oh, you know, I did that when I was 6 years old or 10 years old or 12 years old, and I put it on the shelf, and now I want to hear, you know, all about the, the finer truths of Scripture. Well, you certainly want to preach the whole counsel of God, but we need to preach the gospel. It's, it's the illustration I use in Getting the Gospel Wrong of the famous Vince Lombardi quote, you know, one of the greatest football coaches of all time uh, and won many championships in his day with the Green Bay Packers. And he would begin every season with his world champion, Hall of Fame, top of their game professional players on his team. Every season at the first practice, he would start out by holding up a football and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, they know that what a football is, and you know I'm sure some of them thought, "Oh, come on, well, don't waste our time. We're we're pros, you know. We're and I think a lot of Christians are that way, especially some of the, you know, with all due respect to some of the Bible churches that, you know, most of their people can you know name the the twelve sons of of, of Joseph and every you know judge and king in the history of Israel and they can talk about all you can define dispensationalism and define pre-tribulational you know rapture and they can give you all the isms and asms and and all of that and all they can tell you everything that's wrong with Calvinism but they won't walk across the street to share the gospel with their neighbor why because they've elevated this notion of of knowledge which and that's good I mean I we need both we need knowledge you know we need to study the word of God but uh 
we also need to hear the gospel. And that's why at Plum Creek, you hear the gospel every week. It may be at the end of the message. It may be in a prayer. It may be just in a passing comment as I'm going through. But I try never to miss an opportunity to share the gospel in the first place because we never know. We have visitors every week. We never know if we're going to have someone that doesn't know the Lord. And also believers need to hear it. So why is it that most people can, you know, like if, if I were to, if, if I were to say, to say, Jeff, hey, uh, hey, where'd you grow up? Tell me about your childhood. Man, he could just launch right into it, right? We love to talk about that stuff. Or, you know, tell, you know someone says to me, uh, how did you guys, uh, how'd you get into ministry? Man, I could talk, I could easily just, it's not something I'm stressed about or nervous. What'd you say? Easily. Easily, sure. <laughs> That's it. But with the gospel, we tense up. And I think that's the devil doing that. We ought to be just conversant about it. You ought to, if, you, if you get on an elevator with someone, you know, uh, you ought to be able to, you know, you ought to be able to just easily in, in 30 seconds or less share, share the good news. Again, you're not, it's not formulaic. It's not uh, some chant they have to repeat. It's the good news that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. So what were you going to say? Nothing. You were too, I could tell. Uh, your elevator. Yeah. If you're going up, you, say, you can relate to going up to heaven. You there you go. Yeah, you get someone gets on the elevator and, you know, a lot of times you say, you going up or down? Because okay, a lot of people get on the elevator, yeah. you know, if, if it's a bigger hotel, you know, you're going up, they push the down button. But it stops there for someone to get off, and the person gets on, not really realizing it, and they realize, oh, I, it wasn't my car, right? So you could say, hey, you going up or down? And they they go, oh, going down. You could just segue that into a nice illustration. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's really, um, and we get into that in it with not by works and some of our evangelism training things, and we have a lot of tools that we use. We, for years, we we've kind of backed away from it just because they're they were expensive to purchase and we it was uh, not a good return on the financial investment but we had a tool called the cross puzzle that we've used and i use that a lot in uh, conferences to show people how to share the gospel it's just a little puzzle of a cross and you it, it you tells a story and you use it it's wooden handmade uh, that's a neat story i'll have to t share with you sometime about well i'll share it with you now right we're not on an agenda anybody opposed to me chasing a rabbit for a moment so I was in Philadelphia at a conference, and uh, a guy came up to my booth, and we got to talking, and ended up talking for a long time. It might have been an hour, I don't remember, but a long, long time. And when we were done, I just really enjoyed the conversation. It was about China. He did a lot of work in China, and and I, you know, I've never been to China, but I had some some views and some things I'd studied about this alleged uh, revival that's happening there, and so. Of course, he was interested in that. But anyway, when we were done, I said, uh, you know, hey, good to talk to you. And so he was about to walk away. And I, for some reason, just felt like I really liked the guy and enjoyed the conversation. I felt like I needed to give him something. So I said, hey, I'd like to give you one of my books. And I picked up Getting the Gospel Wrong and said, hey, why don't you take this? Oh, thank you very much. So um, a little bit later, he came back over to my table and, and he gave me this cross puzzle. And he made them in his garage. And uh, his name was Ken. And uh, he, he said it's an evangelistic tool. 
So I said, thank you, and I set it aside. So later that night, I'm in my hotel room. He calls my cell phone, and he says, JB, I'm like 30 pages into your book, and I've got the gospel all wrong. I hope you haven't read the little pamphlet that comes with my cross puzzle because I'm embarrassed. He said, would you help me reword this and, and kind of turn it into something? So I said, happily, yes. And so anyway, that began a relationship, and for years then, you know, we would buy these 50 at a time and large ones and small ones and, uh, and uh, use them and, and sell them. But it, it just shows the simplicity of the, of the gospel. Um, but, uh, but, you know, this, all, this little digression started with, with your very good question. That is, you know, sharing the gospel is not something that we should, A, be nervous about or scared about or be uneasy about. It should be something that's just telling the story, you know. Uh, we were a sinner on the road to hell. We trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone, and He give a, gave us the gift of eternal life. And now we know we're a child of God. We're a believer. And, um, and I mean, obviously, there are a lot of other scenarios where you might need to use some apologetics to kind of open the door. But ultimately, you can't argue someone into the gospel. You can't convince them. You've got to just keep sharing the gospel until the Spirit of God breaks through and they believe it. So, make sense? Yeah. What do you think about when, let's say, you hear like an evangelistic crusade, say, this many people saved, and then this many people confirm their faith? What do you think about or, that? Or usually, it's in, in my upbringing of Baptist churches, it's rededicated. Yeah, right? rededicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I, I mean, obviously I'd have to know the message that was being preached to be able to kind of. Or, or identify it, but we are called to be critics of gospel presentation. The very first letter Paul wrote, as we talked about last time, was him pointing out that what these people were hearing was contrary to the gospel he preached and contrary to the gospel that the Lord wanted us to hear. So, But in general, I would say a lot of the larger crusade-type things, you know, they're not preaching a clear gospel. They're getting people to come down an aisle and sign a card and that actual mechanism in and of itself is misleading, and, and we've talked about this. But um, it's, it's, it's not a minor thing. It's not me making much ado about nothing or obsessing over some small point. But when, when you call on people to believe the gospel, and you're, you know, here's what usually happens. Most, I found that most, you know, conservative Christian preachers, teachers, the, you know, evangelists or whatever that, you know, believe the Bible is the Word of God, they accurately describe the problem. Most gospel tracts accurately describe the problem. They talk about sin, separation, the need for a remedy, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. They get all that right, but they get right up to the end where you've kind of got the person going, yes, wow, I'm, I'm in desperate need of a Savior. Tell me what to do. And then they fumble the ball. And in, in crusades, what they'll often do is, you know, uh, get people to come forward and sign a commitment card. But as we've talked about, and as we're going to see, you know, a, a little bit later, you know, the Bible never uses the term commit your life to Christ or commit your heart to Christ or commit yourself to Christ as a means of getting saved. Commitment is a discipleship issue. Every believer ought to wake up every day 
and take up their cross and follow him and commit their lives you know each day to serve him and live for him but the moment of conversion when someone passes from death to life that uh, that passing from death to life does not happen because of some commitment that i make that turns the gospel 180 degrees in the wrong direction it's not what we bring to God or we commit to Him or we promise to Him. It's what He's done for us. We simply receive it by faith. So I, I, I don't have a problem with you know, large evangelistic events. I've been a part of some of them, but I just think we need to be careful about you know, how, uh, what, what the call to action is. And if the call to action is anything but faith, or belief, you know, they're synonyms in Scripture, uh, we've kind of could, could run the risk of being confusing. And so what I'll often do is call on people to believe right where they are. I'll say, you don't have to step out of your seat. You don't have to raise a hand or do a dance or whatever. You just need to right now where you are, between you and the Lord, put a box around you. Pretend like, don't think about the person sitting next to you or on either side, just you and the Lord. Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died in your place on the cross? If not, you can do it right now. It's a simple matter of faith. Who are you trusting to get you into heaven? Who are you trusting to rescue you from hell? And, and, and you call on them. And then what I'll do often is say, now if you've trusted Christ today, we'd like to know about it. Come talk to us. Come tell us. And, and again, I'm not opposed to even altar calls if they're done the right way as a, you know, a method for people who have trusted Christ to let someone know so we can give them a Bible and give them some discipleship materials and maybe get their information and invite them to church. But too often, the altar call is presented as if it's the means by which people get saved. And that's problematic. Because what happens then is the next time, two weeks later, two months later, whatever it might be, when the person's struggling in their Christian life with sin or whatever, they're going to think, I must have done something wrong. Maybe I didn't really mean business. You know, that's the common phrase. Uh, and, uh, and so we, we want to make sure that we do what the Bible does 160 times in the New Testament alone, and that is condition eternal life upon faith alone. Yeah? What is an altar call? Hmm. So in a lot of uh, church, he, the question was, what's an altar call? So in a lot of churches, at the end of their services, you know how we just will pray and often I'll give the gospel or something, and, but, but usually we just sort of pray and sing a song and, and leave. A lot of churches will end with an uh, opportunity for people to come forward, literally leave their pew or their seat and walk to the front where there are counselors waiting for them who then can help them sort of sign these commitment cards. or they All of them do it different ways, but... Altar call is calling on people to, to come forward. And again, I'm not opposed to an altar call in and of itself. There are times, and I've used it, where I just felt the Spirit of God leading, and it was as much for believers as unbelievers, that, look, there's stuff going on. You, some of you need to do business with the Lord, and you just need to come and pray. And you need to spend some time just really. And, and the Spirit of God, if He directs in that way, can, can lead. And, and often it becomes, uh, I've been a part of services that were very meaningful because the Spirit of God clearly was directing and fences were being mended and, and, and people were reconciling and things like So there's a, there's a place for that, but it has to be done, done clearly. Anybody else have thoughts about that? Yeah. Well, I, when I 
talk about my relationship with Christ. I like to tell people that I feel forgiven by him, that that's the most meaningful part of my relationship. Because I, it took me a long time to get to that place where I thought, well, my sin is not forgivable. But it is. Yeah. And is that... I know I haven't seen the word forgiveness come up yet. Yeah, we... we, we be part of the gospel. I mean, to me, that's part of the gospel. Yeah, that, absolutely. That's the core essence of it. You're trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So it's, um, you know, the gospel is about grace and mercy. Grace is the giving of an undeserved gift. That's eternal life. Mercy is the withholding of judgment. Of punishment that's forgiveness of sin and so john three sixteen, for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that's justice by the way somebody had to die blood had to be shed the penalty had to be paid so jesus paid the penalty for the sins of the whole world first john 2 2 tells us so there's justice for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him that's the means by which we receive salvation believe in him Two things. You get two things. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. That means you you don't receive the penalty. You're receiving mercy. Your sins have been forgiven. Because the payment was paid, you don't have to pay it. Your, your debt has been canceled, which is what forgiveness means. But secondly, shall never perish, but has everlasting life. That's grace. So you see justice, mercy, and grace. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting favor we don't deserve. And all three coalesce at the foot of the cross. So we have talked a lot about redemption. We'd spent some time several months ago on Wednesday nights talking about that core word. But I'll, you'll hear me when I articulate the gospel, I'll often say trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And But you bring up a great point, and when I want to reiterate it. As I said earlier, the gospel is not formulaic. So you said when you share about your relationship with Christ, you just talk about how you've been forgiven. Well, that's great That's because that's part of the gospel and that's something that was particularly meaningful in your situation. And it, it, it's got to be in there. You know, Like I said, the core elements are sin. Sin by definition means you need forgiveness for that sin. So a lot of people think they can get their sins forgiven by doing penance or saying, you know, going to confession or, uh, you know, whatever, uh, or overcoming their sin by a bunch of good works, like that's a T-chart and they outweigh it. But, no, uh, sin has to be canceled. It has to be forgiven. The only way to do that is by faith in the one who paid that penalty. Yeah? This might be a good spot to talk about the grace aspect and then the fellowship, family of God aspect. Yeah. Because when you're talking about God's forgiveness that could be part of your ongoing fellowship with God. Yeah, so we talked um, some time ago, and if you look on, on the website, the Not By Works website, under the mid, under videos, midweek Bible study, you can just scroll through and you'll see the one that talks about family of God versus fellowship with God. That's a very important distinction that um, people miss, that positionally we are in Christ and part of the family of God the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ when faith meets the gospel 
it's done. It's a one-time moment in time, never to be changed. At that moment, Jesus says, you pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. So we're part of the family of God. And you can never get out of that family of God. Your spiritual DNA changes. You are regenerated spiritually, reborn. But fellowship with God can wax and wane based on our hard attitude and our you know, walking with Him if we're in the Spirit versus the flesh, if we're walking in the new man or the old man. And, and that's what First John is all about. The book of First John, though commonly misunderstood as a book about how to know whether you're really a Christian, is not about that at all. It's a book about how to know whether you're in fellowship. And I don't know how people miss it because he starts right out in the beginning by saying, you know, these things we write to you that your joy may be full and that you may have fellowship with Him. Our fellowship was with the Lord and we want you to have fellowship with Him too. So, uh, your forgiveness positionally and forensically is done. And nothing you can ever do, praise God, can change that. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your home is in heaven is secure. But in a practical, it's just like the difference between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. Positionally, we, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us, and that's perfect. I mean, Christ isn't 99% righteous. He's 100% righteous. So when we stand before the doors of heaven someday, it's going to be based on the perfect righteousness of Christ that we get in. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, that unless you're perfect like my heavenly Father is perfect, you'll never get in. So that's why we need the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. But everyone in this room would admit we don't always act righteous, right? Practically speaking, our behavior often is not in alignment with our position. Our practice doesn't match our position. And that's when that happens, we're out of fellowship and the Spirit of God convicts us and we, we come before the Lord, we acknowledge it. That's what confession means, to say the same thing as homo, legeo, homo, same, legeo, to speak. You confess, you say, you say Lord, I blew it. And, and, you, and, and a spiritual life is a series of growth steps, and, but the goal is to recognize who we are in Christ and to stand in that position and to let the uh, righteousness of Christ, you know, flow through us. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Um, and it's, it's uh, you know, so that's what First John is all about. But yeah, that's a, good, that's a good point. We've talked about that, but these are all, these aren't isolated little pericopes. We want to constantly connect all the dots as we go forward. So, But let's talk about how the gospel, again, has to have words. It's not formulaic. It's not ritualistic. It's not some chant, but there is content expressed through words that must be believed. So this is in Acts 11, when Peter is recounting his experience with Cornelius to the church leaders, who at that time in Jerusalem, who were at that time were still a little uneasy about Gentiles being part of the group, you know. And so Peter says, he's, he's, he's retelling the story, and he talks about how Cornelius was told to send for Peter, who when he came would tell him words by which he and his household would be saved, right? So again, the gospel has words. So how you can say you're preaching the gospel and not using words is crazy. Now, we, we need to do nice things for people. That's part of just living the Christian life. We're supposed to shine like lights in this perverse world, Paul says. So it's great to help your neighbor carry in their groceries or shovel their walk or help them with a plumbing leak or whatever. That's wonderful. But don't ever think that by doing that you've shared the gospel. You've not shared the gospel unless you've used words. Or Ephesians 1. 
Paul says, In him you also trusted, that's Christ, after you heard the word of truth. What is the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation. And having believed, what? The gospel, you were saved. So if you trace this through every book of the New Testament, you see the gospel has words. Uh, again, I mentioned Hebrews or Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, namely the gospel. Uh, so Lewis Berry Chafer put it this way, preaching the gospel is telling men something about Christ and his finished work for them, which they are to believe. The gospel has not been preached until a personal message concerning a crucified and living Savior has been presented and in a form which calls for the response of faith. And that's from his book, Salvation. If you've not read my little book, The Gospel Unplugged, I state right out at the beginning in the preface, if you've not read Chafer's Salvation, put my book down go read it. And then throughout the Gospel Unplugged, I quote Chafer with these little insets because it's, it's really a profound, a profound statement of the clear, simple gospel message. So the only means of gaining eternal life is to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. So if you've never heard the gospel, you can't possibly be saved. And I think, uh, as we talked about in a previous session, in this postmodern age, the gospel has become clouded and eclipsed and shrouded in this nebulous idea of just being nice to people and sharing Jesus with people and talking about Jesus and all that's great. But if you've not shared the words by which they can be saved, you've not shared the gospel. Jesus, in the simple, one of the simplest statements of the gospel in all of Scripture said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And this is not, you know, you can't yank this out of context. And, you know, in, the, in John 6, he's, he's explained about how he's the bread of life and he's the living water, right? And he's the one who's died for their sins and, 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 and rose again or is going to pay their penalty for sin. He's the Lamb of God, as John introduced him, who takes away the sin of the world. And yet the gospel has become so distorted and deconstructed that the average person has just abandoned the plain and simple message of God's word. So what has happened, and this is just my high-level uh, characterization, is that most preachers and Bible teachers and seminaries and Bible colleges have just completely distorted the gospel. Either they've gone full-blown Calvinistic to where the gospel is front-loaded with all of these pledges and promises and commitments and turning and you got to stop sinning or turn from sin or at least be willing to turn from your sin because God would never save anybody that still liked to sin. Well, guess what? We all like to sin. How many of you have sinned in the last week? Well, of course. You wouldn't do it if you didn't like it. It's the pleasure of sin. Uh, you know? So when you front-load the gospel with all these pledges, and that's full-blown Calvinism. But others... In the pastoral, academic, you know, theological realm, you know, they just sort of make it this nebulous sort of just be nice and talk about Jesus. That's at the you know, that's in the the, uh, the preachers and teachers. But on the other end of the spectrum, you've got good-hearted people like perhaps some of you here today or some watching the video who would say. And I love, I know the gospel, I get the gospel clear, and I understand that Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead, but I'm just nervous about sharing it. 
And that's too bad. I understand it, but that's too bad. And, and it's because we've been taught with these sort of confrontational methods of evangelism. You know, you've, you've seen them, EE and CWT, you know, continuing witness training and evangelism explosion and these other methods. And again, nothing wrong with those. The Lord's used those uh, often. Uh, I think EE, uh, which was D. James Kennedy's deal, has a pretty false gospel there, and I deal with it in getting the gospel wrong. But the motives were pure. They wanted to get, see people saved. But, you know, rather than, you know, confrontational evangelism or even intentional a lot of a lot of my colleagues and people that i respect and, and love you know they do evangelism training and and they call it intentional evangelism and i know what they mean and and that's fine but even that term is a little bit off-putting to me because it tends to imply that sharing the gospel is something you've got to make this sort of premeditated plan like you get up today and you go okay today come what may i'm going to share i'm going to have the courage you know to share the gospel i mean does it take courage to tell people say you were cured from cancer say you got cancer and you and suddenly you get a clean but do you to take courage to tell people? Of course not. You can't wait to get on the horn and start telling people. If you won the lottery, does it take courage to tell people? I mean, it might if you're a Christian who's in principle opposed to sharing the lottery, or playing the lottery. But, I mean, if you get good news in any other realm of life, it, we never connect courage with sharing good news except when it comes to the gospel. And so this notion of intentional evangelism, to me, sends the wrong message. So we prefer the term instinctive evangelism not intentional but instinctive that it ought to just naturally flow in in the way as you go you know uh, and that's really what the great commission is all about by the way uh, what's the great commission in a nutshell uh, go into all the world preach the gospel make teaching all men making disciples right what's the command that's part of the great commission anybody know in English, and when we read the Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, 19 to 20, or 18 to 20, we think of the word go, because in English, that is a command. Go. It's an understood up subject of you. But in reality, in the Greek, of course, the Bible wasn't written in English. In the Greek, the only command in the Great Commission is make disciples. Mathetuo. It's in the imperative in Greek. It's a command. Go is actually a participle, just like baptizing, just like teaching. In English, when we come across a participle, we tend to add the ing. That's how we kind of identify them. And in the translation, most translations of the Great Commission, they do that with teaching and baptizing. But for some reason, and it goes back to the King James and the original English translation, they chose to translate poor UMI, which is the participle going, with the force of a command. And so you get the implication that evangelizing is something that we have, is a command that we have to obey, and we've got to force ourselves to go. Go into the jungles and go into the third world countries and go into China and go, go, go. But the actual Greek is as you go, or going, make disciples. So it's as you're going to the grocery store, as you're out in your yard raking leaves, as you're going to down the road, wherever you go, 
You ought to be instinctively sharing the gospel. Not something that you have to intentionally get up the courage to do or decide to do. It's not a decision to make. It's just, you didn't, when you get up in the morning, you don't say, okay, today I'm going to brush my teeth. You know, you just do it, right? And that's the way evangelism should be. Um, now, that's a bit of an oversimplification because sometimes the Spirit of God might convict you of a particular person that is lost and that you feel a strong urging that day to go talk to them and you should be obedient and do that. But in general, evangelism comes to you. You don't go to evangelism. Just as you're talking to people, you know, um, and, and you know, the elevator analogy or wherever you go, you just talk about it. And then you got to be sensitive to when the door gets cracked to kind of push it open a little more. Um, it's not only about making sure we articulate the simple gospel message. It's about articulating it and then, as Chafer said, calling on people to believe it. That gets a little more interactive because if someone says, oh, really, that's interesting, or, you know, then you begin to say, well, yeah, you know, what, what, tell me about what you think about spiritual, what, what's your spiritual background? Did you grow up in church? You just start asking questions to get them thinking about spiritual matters. The first thing you know, you begin to share with them sin, salvation, and the Savior. Yeah, someone had a hand over here. Yeah. Saying probably the reason a lot of times it takes a little bit more courage to share the gospel is because a lot of people get offended and Christ said you're going to be persecuted for it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that, um, you know, people uh, can, can have negative reactions. But what I'm saying with instinctive evangelism, since it wasn't a confrontation to begin with, it was just a conversation. You know, worst thing that happens is you, you know, you just say, hey, look, I, I, I just really, I only care, I care enough to, about you to, to think about your soul, and sorry if that offended you, but, you know, here's my card, or here's my number, give me a call if you ever want to talk about it, and then you walk away and leave it in the Lord's hands, you know. Uh, and, you know, that's, uh, it's good, that's the thing we need to remember, it's good news. These people are lost and on the road to hell. Um, and we need to, um, you know, we need to, to be, it's, it's not so much about courage as it is confidence. And if you know the gospel, it just, it just flows, you know, the more you talk about it. Anne was telling me, she, she's done some transcription for me for my next book, which is Spirit of the Antichrist, the first, well, we're going to do two volumes, but, and she was pointing out there's several things when I'm speaking, because that's based on the series that we did, the 18 videos, that I tend to say the same way every time I say it. Not wasn't talking about the gospel in this case, but that you know why that is, because I'm confident in that area, and I talk about that area a lot, and so it just tends to be repetitious in that area. And the gospel should be the same way. It should be something, again, it's not formulaic, many different ways to articulate the same thing, but it's got to include Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, sin, the need for a Savior and the paying the penalty for that sin, which is forgiveness, and the exclusivity of Christ. So, anybody else? Well, I, I yeah. just want to say that I get more courage when I know that God is using me. You know, that I, it's not my words, it's God's words. That's it. And that helps me be much more courageous when I remind myself of that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, 
we're coming full circle of where we began. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. So if that gospel is wrong, then, you know, there's no power there. Again, you know, God is sovereign. God can hit a home run with a crooked stick. We've talked about that. Praise God that he's used poor and often inaccurate gospel presentations in spite of them to somehow lead people to Christ. Um, but that doesn't mean that when we go to fulfill the Great Commission and share Christ with others that we ought to pull that crooked stick out of the batting box, we, we, you know, bat box. We want, to sh we want to get it right, and we're called to get it right. And, um, you, know, you know, you talked about people that might react negatively, and you had said that gives you courage. Well, there's an old analogy of, you know, the boys that were, saw a pack of dogs off in a junkyard across a fence, and these, these little kids said, hey, let's just, you know, let's just start trying to throw rocks at them. And so they just took turns just picking up rocks, throwing up these dogs. And, you know, you know how they could tell when they hit one? They heard a yelp. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it is with, with the sharing the gospel. A lot of times we might say it just in passing, you know, or give a gospel track. We leave gospel tracks in every hotel we stay in with a $5 bill in it. And I'm... I'm certain that most of the time, the $5 bill goes in the uh, service person's wallet and the track goes right in the trash. But I also am certain that there's a small percentage, just law of large numbers, that might read it and who knows how many might get saved. And so when, when you do it verbally, a lot of times you might say something to someone and, and they just sort of give you a sort of a disinterested nod and you go on your way. But when the people react, you knew you you know you hit them with the rock. You know the spirit of God was convicting them. Something connected, and even though you may not in that moment see them come to the place where they trust in Christ for salvation, the seed was planted and 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 it got their attention. So, by the way, I'm not suggesting you guys go throw rocks at people. That's a, <laughs> well, a lot of times people respond really positively right off the bat. Um, sometimes I think when it gets dicey is when you start talking about sin. Yeah. Because a lot of people want to believe that it's all about under you know, getting to the place where you can connect with the power of the universe. You know, there's a very sort of universal new age type of thing going around right now. And so for you to say, well, you know, it's it's great that you're thinking about spiritual things, because that's where it begins, is if you seek me you'll find me. Um, but what's uncomfortable usually is saying, you know, Christianity makes a claim. And so it's, it's saying that you can't just take any road. And I think the exclusivity of our, of our gospel, the gospel presented in, in, in the Bible, is, is sometimes uncomfortable in, in the sense that you have to say, you know, you're not good enough yet. Yeah, and you never will be right until until you've been covered, and so you know these are, these are just things are coming to my head from recent times when I've oh great we're talking about it this is wonderful and we're getting deeper into it and oh I'm going to have to tell them that that's yeah. not going to cut it that's not going to be enough because nothing is enough that we try and do yeah. and. Uh, and I think telling people, yeah, we've been forgiven is huge. 
and making it a personal thing. Like I'm on, I'm in the same place you are. Right. It's not. It's not that I'm better than you, but just simply that I've discovered that God gave us, He gave us a revelation, and and so He doesn't want us to just call Him Sam when that's not His name. Right. And and I think. You know, as we were thinking about forgiveness quite a bit today, I got to think about how in human relationships, sometimes you're supposed to forgive someone regardless of whether or not there's been a punishment inflicted. So it's not like, let's say my neighbor, you know, runs into my mailbox and, hey, Jeff, oh, sorry about that, and drives off and doesn't really do anything <laughs> about it. You know, that might, well, I can just forgive him for that. Yeah. Um, and so our concept of forgiveness isn't based upon the paying of penalty. Right. But with God, as soon as the penalty's paid, it's forgiven. That's it. Canceled debt. Yeah. And uh, and we're not just hoping that he'll be a big enough guy to just say, no biggie. You right. made a few mistakes. Um, he He's not like that. He, he There must be a penalty paid. Yeah. And for a lot of us, we wouldn't want our neighbor um, to pay for the mailbox. Oh, it's not a big deal. Right. You it was know. an accident, yeah. So I think that's what makes it tricky sometimes is that with when he was saying he paid the penalty, that that means forgiveness. Whereas in our life it doesn't necessarily mean that. And, and yeah. the language gets confusing because of the way that the devil has has tried to make society so ambiguous that that the yeah. words don't mean the same thing they used to. Yeah, it's the absence of certainty, yeah. the absence of clarity that I talk about in chapter two. But you know, it goes back to Bible words with Bible definitions. Right. We are, are very good at using Bible words with English definitions and cu cultural definitions. Like we talked about faith. You know, you talk to Calvinists, faith means a census, you know, fiducia and noticia. All three components have to be there. And if you didn't really mean business and make a firm enough commitment, you didn't have faith. Well, that's absurd. Faith is simply confidence or assurance. And, and biblically, the word forgiveness doesn't always translate into the way we describe it. We talk about forgive and forget and all that. But with God, it's a forensic. It's actually a, an accounting term. It's like the debt is absolved. And Isaiah said he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west, right? And um, and so, I, I do think we have to be mindful of the culture that we live in, yeah. which um, which shapes how we talk about. I mean, I think what you are talking about is how the culture has, you know, watered down church and gospel and everything that it, it used to be and should be, and we've, we're watered it down and made it yeah. meaningless now. But we, we are moving in that world, and so we have to, I all, I'm always thinking of a better way to talk to people who move in that world and believe in that world, a better way to talk to them that they can receive, receive the gospel when they are being when they are are being uh, uh, cultured to be hostile to it, so instead of using the word sin, I will say when I get the opportunity, which isn't very often, <laughs> like I'll say, we are all broken, or we all fall short, or we I'll use a, a, 
another way to describe sin, and I say we, and I get a better reception for that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, you make a very good point that while the gospel is universal, it transcends time and culture. It hasn't changed one iota from the garden in Genesis to today. It's faith in God. God has to provide the lamb. God has to provide the remedy. What does change is culture. And so we, we want to communicate in a way that's going to connect. doesn't mean the substance of what we're saying changes, but the way we communicate it might resonate or offend unnecessarily. But the fact is, uh, we do want to be careful when choosing our terms. I, what, what resonated with me and what I, what I would give a hearty amen to is when you described uh, you know, that you, you're, you're, telling, you're telling the person, we're all there, we're all in the same boat, the universal nature of sin. You know, it's for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And falling short is the biblical definition of hamartia, sin, which means to miss the mark, right? So that part's good, but we want to be careful, like absent any other clarifying comments, to me, sin is more than just being broken. Now, you, you added the clarifying comments, so it was perfectly clear. But, you know, there needs to be this notion of personal uh responsibility and personal offense to a holy God. It's not just that the person is is broken uh, through no fault of their own. It's that they have offended a holy God, but that that holy, righteous, and just God is also loving and gracious and merciful, and he's provided a remedy free of charge. But, but if they don't know they're a, a sinner, if they don't know they've missed the mark, if they don't know they've fallen short, and I think it can be very effective to say, look, we're all in this boat, you know. Uh, you, know I, I, you know, everyone's manifestation of depravity may be different, but look, we've all fallen short, and we are sold under sin. And, and no amount of our pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or trying harder or working harder or doing good can overcome that because it's in the blood. You know, we don't... We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And that's what sinners do. So we've, we're under the old Adam. We need to be under the new Adam. So I think that connecting point of people who, who most often, because like you said, our culture is so confused and so messed up. so anti-sin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they've changed it to, you know, a weakness or flaw or limitation or all these other... Not even that anymore. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, yeah. Anything goes. I can do whatever I want. Right. That's, that's Any, what it's like the last book, last verse in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's this, this little T truth for everyone. So... And it's that, frightening. It's moving faster that direction. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it, no, it totally is, and that's what makes it a challenge. I mean, the age in which we live provides newfound opportunities for the gospel because, like you said, there's a sort of awareness of the otherworldliness and the spiritual aspect, whereas back in the modern era, people were very reticent about anything that you couldn't see, feel, touch, hear, smell. So there's that, which is sort of a positive, but at the other hand, there's no absolutes, there's no certainty, there's no grand meta-narrative which is true for all people of all times. And so, 
you know, because the gospel is exclusive, is absolute, it just really is hard. Um, and I think that's a sign of the times, and it doesn't mean we give up, obviously. Uh, I think we just have to be sensitive to the moment and the opportunities and keep preaching the gospel. And you know, at Plum Creek, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. In my mind. It's a gift. Such yeah. a, an amazing gift. Yeah. One that you can only get from Christ. That's no quote. the only place to get it. From. Yeah, that was the whole, I don't know what book is in the gift bag that you got, but if it's not in there, pick up top 10 reasons, because that was the whole genesis behind that book. Top 10 reasons some people go to hell. As I'm sitting here thinking, you know, after doing this for many, many years, why in the world do people refuse the greatest gift in the world? It's a gift, right? And yet they do. And so I sort of distilled it down into 10 common things, things like pride, things like bitterness. People have tragedies and hurts in, in their life, and they shake their fist at a God that they think is unfair and say, how could you? And so when you try to share with them the good news, they already have a roadblock up. So pride, you know, I forget what they all are, but there's all different reasons that people, they think they're good enough. You know, they don't think they don't need a saver, you know, all kinds of things. So that's, uh, that's my, you know, attempt anyway to address the, the craziness of our culture. You know, so, so we'll, we didn't get into it. I was hoping we'd get into at least the first couple, but that's fine. These are free form uh, Q&A type Bible studies, so we have no agenda uh, but we did get right up to the cusp of it. So next week, we'll dive into the first of 10 false understandings of the gospel. So any other thoughts or comments or questions before we wrap up? Awesome. Well, thank you guys, and we will be dismissed. <laughs>